As you're turning in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. We are dealing with a thought. And it's called being all in. All in. Now, I'm not a card player. But they tell me when one plays poker and they're placing their bid and when someone takes all of their chips and pushes them all into the center of the table, it means that they're all in and they believe in the hand that they've been dealt. So much so that they're willing to risk it all by pushing it all. Again, I'm not a card player, but a, a hand has been dealt to me by our sovereign God. And the Bible lets me know that all of my days have been written in his book before any of them came to be. And so because he went all in for me, I can go all in for him. Because Jesus said, if I try to save my life, that's when I lose it. But if I lose my life for his sake, that's when I'll find it. So I want to be a believer who's all in for the Lord who's not holding back, but giving up everything that he calls for me to give, whether it's my praise and worship, whether it's his resources, whatever it may be, Lord, take it all. And so today we're going to focus on uh, Luke chapter 9, but before I go there, I just need to let you know that there is a man named Jesus who has utterly changed the trajectory of my life. There's a man named Jesus who came into my life and just blew my life together. He didn't blow it apart. He blew it together. And because I met him, I am not the same and I will never, ever be the same. And anyone who does meet him personally, um, you can't be the same. You can't stay the same. Oh, boy, if I had time, I would take you by John chapter 3 and let you talk a little bit with Nicodemus who came to him at night. And he had a few questions for the Lord. And Jesus talked to him that you have to be born again. And somehow through the pages of John, you see this transformation slowly taking place in the life of Nicodemus. Because he stands up to the Pharisees when the Pharisees are putting Jesus down. And he says, does our law permit that we judge someone without hearing him? And then later, of course, in the latter chapters of John, we see Nicodemus no longer hiding in the shadows, no longer having questions, but he and Joseph of Arimathea are standing out boldly in the light, taking the body of Jesus from the cross, getting permission from Pilate in order to give Christ a proper burial. There was a transformation in his life because the one that he met in John chapter 3 transformed him to make a public stand by, we, by the time we get to John 19. If I had time, I'd stop by John chapter 4 and talk about a Samaritan woman who had lived an immoral lifestyle. No one wanted to be with her People put her down. She had living, a living boyfriend and multiple husbands. She had a past. But Jesus came and met her at the well. And Jesus was willing to drink from her cup. And Jesus told her that he was the Messiah. And she was transformed as a result of one encounter with Jesus. And she went into the town and said, come see a man who has told me everything about myself. You see, this man has a way of transforming and changing your life. And I just wonder, can I get a witness in the house today? Because when you met him, you can't stay the same. Last week, I shared 
my testimony. And I talked about how I had grown up in church, but I didn't know the Lord of the church. I was religious, but I was not right with God. Not until I went to a camp at the age of 15 and I heard the gospel for the first time in such a way where I could understand it. And I realized why Jesus died on the cross based on the teachings of Isaiah chapter 53, how Jesus was wounded for my transgressions, how he was bruised for my iniquities. The Lord took my place on the cross. And so on June 29th, 1984, I became a believer. I went all in and I became a believer. I didn't know everything I was getting involved in, but I knew that the love of God and his grace was irresistible and he was wooing me, calling me, drawing me in, and I accepted him and he did not cast me out. Now I became a believer, but uh, I didn't necessarily uh, grow as a disciple of the Lord. Um, I became a believer in 1984, but didn't get discipled until 1987. So today I'm going to talk about this concept of discipleship. May do some more next week. Uh, it's hard to cover all of this stuff in one sermon. But I hope through these messages to whet your appetite whenever I preach. So that you or anyone preaches up here. Or when we're led in communion by Elder Tyler and the scriptures are read. And Jewel is leading us in worship and the scriptures are read. We pray that your appetites are wet for the word of the Lord. So much so that you open up your Bible when you leave here. Uh, that you open up your phone, you, sc you scroll it away from here. Because if you can get a taste of the word whereby you want to taste it for yourself, then we've succeeded here as leaders in the church. We don't want you to live from Sunday to Sunday waiting to get a word from us. No, no, the Holy Spirit, he has a lot he wants to teach you apart from us. And man, we hope this word will make you want to get in and dig in and study to show yourself approved. Workmen who do not need to be ashamed but rightly dividing the word of truth. And so today I, I want to talk about I'm all in as a disciple. I'm all in as a disciple. Last week, I'm all in as a believer. Today, I'm all in as a disciple because in 1984, I became a believer, but I didn't get discipled until 1987. And that's a big difference from being a believer to being a believer who is now being discipled. There's a big difference. So for that three-year span, unfortunately, um, the enemy had his way in my life because I didn't really know who I was in Christ. Uh, I had been born again, but I wasn't walking in who I was and, and getting to know about those precious promises that God has for me, acknowledging my identity in Christ. Because every believer needs someone spiritually mature pouring into his or her life so that we may grow up in the things of the Lord. So when Jesus commanded the 12, go and make disciples of all nations, he was saying, go and make students and pupils of me. Um, encourage people, teach them the things of God. And we all need to be discipled, whether in a formal fashion where there's one person or two people who invest in us over a period of time, or we are disciple uh, from a distance whereby we are observing people that we respect in the Lord and we're emulating them and imitating various things about them. We all need to grow as disciples of the Lord. And for me, it happened in 1987. Uh, but before that... Um, I had grown up, again, I was a believer, became a believer right before my junior year in high school, but I didn't get discipled until sometime later in my freshman year in college. 
But between that time, I had suffered many a things, and probably the thing that I dread the most was that I lost my virginity um, as a senior in high school. And I know had I been discipled and had someone been watching for me and holding me accountable and encouraging me in the things of the Lord, I know I would have made some different decisions in my life. But I serve a God who can still hit a bullseye with a crooked stick. I serve a God who is able to make crooked paths straight. And I serve a God who led me, even though I didn't know what it meant to be a disciple of his. Uh, I was a believer. But some Sundays, I wasn't even sure about that. Because when you're not discipled, when you're not schooled by the Lord, the enemy has a field day with your mind. And so every Sunday, it seemed, I was praying the prayer of salvation again and again just to make sure. I don't know if anybody's ever been there before. Because I would be out doing what I wanted to do on Friday night and Saturday night, then go to church and feel bad. And then when the preacher would give the invitation, I would pray, Lord, um, uh, I'm serious this time. Uh, Let's make sure this is real. Uh, Save my soul, Jesus. And this was going on and on and on. But it ended when I got discipled. There was a man who took me under his wing at Liberty University. He was uh, one of the vice presidents of the school. And he was the only African-American man on the staff at that time as far as in the leadership of the school. So I was naturally drawn to him as a minority in minority at this school that I went to. And so his name was Michael Faulkner, and he took me under his wing, and he discipled me without calling it discipleship. I didn't even know he was discipling me. Uh, But I was drawn to him. I was drawn to his knowledge of the word. I was drawn to how he loved his wife and his children. And what he would do is he would have me meet him in his office in the morning. And I would come and he would tell me, bring my Bible, because I was one of those Christians who carried the Bible, but I wasn't in the Bible. You know, I had it highlighted, but you couldn't tell, you know, that it was working in my life because I wasn't in the word. Because when you get in the word, the word is going to get in you. But I was just carrying the Bible. So I said, bring your Bible. And we would just start reading scripture slowly. And he would ask me, what do you think this means? What do you think Jesus was saying at this interval? What what do you think was going on here? And we would begin to dialogue about the word of God. And then he would say, hey, I want you to pray right now. And I'm like, out loud? He was like, yes. And and so, so, but he didn't call it discipleship. And then he would bring me over to his house and we would have a meal together and he would pray over the food. And I'm used to that because I saw my dad doing that at home. But he was taking such a personal investment in me. I was like, wow, this is cool. And then he would bring uh, these big books out. One of them was called a concordance. And he says, I'm going to teach you how to look up scripture with this concordance. So when you're thinking about something, you don't know where it's at, use this book right here. So he started introducing Bible tools to me. Then he would say, hey, we're going to read the book of John, and then we're going to talk about it. So every day I want you to read a chapter in John, then we're going to get back and we're going to talk about it. Matter of fact, why don't you take a couple of notes in case you see something, you can have some questions. And again, I didn't know he was discipling me, but he was. And then he said, listen, I I understand you, you like this rap music stuff. And I said, yeah, I do, you know, yeah, you know, Run DMC and the Beastie Boys, LL Cool J, the Fat Boys. I loved all that stuff. And he said, uh, have you ever considered writing raps about God? And I said, no, 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 I never considered that. He said, why don't you write some raps about God? Because, see, in high school, when I got saved, I was still this dude named MC Romeo. 
Y'all didn't hear what I said. I, I was MC Romeo rapping in the halls of Milford Mill High School in Baltimore County. And so when I got saved, he was like, okay, you're rapping about people's mothers and gold chains and girls and street corners, but I want you to rap about God. And so what happened was, and then he said, and, and when you get a rap, let me know and I'll take you out with me when I speak and you can rap. And so as a rapper, you're always looking for a stage. And so I'm like, oh, really? You'll let me out with you? He's like, yeah. So I started reading the word and songs started coming to me. It just started happening. I would listen to sermons and I would not only take notes, but the words, as my brother said, the poetry would come together much more so than when I was MC Romeo trying to make a rhyme. I'm like, man, rhymes all sounded the same. But when I started trying to write for the Lord, stuff started coming. And so when I got my first little rhyme together, we went on out to the street in Lynchburg, Virginia, where some of the brothers was playing basketball. And uh, we had a little ghetto blaster or boom box radio with a beat on it. And we would come out, we hit play, and that beat would go, and I would do my little rap. And the brothers would stop playing basketball. And they would come over. And I'm out there doing my rap. I'm spitting for Christ. I don't really know what's going on, but I'm giving it the best that I got. And then when the brothers would come, he would draw the net and tell them about Christ. And then he would take me to another location. We'd do it. And then I started seeing how the gospel was truly the power of God unto salvation because these tough dudes would start melting in the presence of the Lord. And, and I would see men's countenances change just because the gospel was going out. And then he said, uh, let's go to New York City. Like, what's in New York City? Uh, subway trains. Let's go minister on subway trains. So there I am with him in New York City, holding on to the rail, rapping my little rap. And then he would come up and preach, and people would give their lives to Jesus. He was discipling me. And I didn't know that rap music was going to be the vehicle that God would use to prepare me to preach his word. And from preaching his word, I would meet this girl in college, and then we would move to Nashville with a group called Transformation Crusade. Our record company was here, and then I started working at Christ Community Church, and out of Christ Community Church, Strong Tower Bible Church got started. So let me walk this back. I got saved in 1984, didn't get discipled until 1987. Man took me under his wing. Didn't try to make me be something other than who the Lord had called me to be. By the grace of God, I am what I am. He saw what I was. He saw what kind of talents, what kind of interests I had. And rather than trying to make me be something, he saw what God was doing, and God redeemed it. And the rap music led to preaching. The preaching allowed me to meet this girl. We got married. Then we came to Nashville. I started working at Christ Community and then Strong Tower Bible Church. And none of this would have happened had I not been discipled. Have you been discipled? Has an older woman, an older man, taken you under their wing to teach you the things of God, to hold you accountable? Because some of us may never experience our full potential in the Lord until we allow ourselves to come under as Timothy did with Paul, as Joshua did with Moses. And not only that, then God raises us up to be the Moses to a Joshua, to be the Paul or the Paulette to a Timothea. I try to think of something with a female name. Uh, uh, you know. But he does that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a person, he bids him or her to come and die. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. 
Now, he came to save us from our sin, but he also came to extend a movement of the kingdom of God. And it was going to pass as a result of one person passing the kingdom on to another. One person, Jesus first discipling a group of 12 who would then go out and disciple the world. And we are here because someone else told us the message. Someone else showed us the kingdom. And now we have a role to pass the baton on. It's Olympics time. We've received from the Lord and we're passing it on now to someone else. Starting first if we have children in our home. Starting first with our spouses and our family members. And then towards others. Passing the kingdom of God on. And as Jesus is going um, into Jerusalem to give his life to die on the cross the Bible says he sets his face towards Jerusalem, meaning that he's very, very focused right now. This is the reason for why he has come. It's culminating down to the last moments of his life, and he's going into Jerusalem to a place where he had been threatened, to a place where the disciples understood how toxic the environment was because they knew that they wanted to kill Jesus in Jerusalem. So he spent a lot of time in Galilee in the north, and he had come through Samaria. Now he's going on into Jerusalem, and the Bible says in Mark's gospel that the disciples are afraid. But Jesus steps out in front of them. He is not afraid. He is the son of God, and he understands that his time has come, and he must lay his life down. And so as they're going in, many people come up to him talking about they want to follow him. Other gospels talk about a guy named a rich young ruler who comes up to Christ and he wants to follow Christ. Uh, and then as Jesus challenges him, the Bible says that young man, he goes away soft. We see blind people coming up to Jesus looking for healing. And we see all kinds of folks as Jesus is on this road heading into Jerusalem. They're coming up to him. And in Luke chapter 9, three different individuals approach, approach Christ. And I want to talk about them before we leave. So beginning at verse 57, Luke chapter 9, reading from the New King James Version, it says, Now it happened, as they journeyed on the road, that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So this is the first of three individuals who's going to approach Jesus. And so this man comes up to him and he says, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, Luke doesn't tell us specifically who this person is, but in Matthew's account, Matthew lets us in on who this person is. And according to Matthew chapter 8, verse 9, this someone is a scribe. So a scribe comes up, and these are the people who would write the law, transfer the law from scroll to scroll. So these were the ones who hung out with the Pharisees. These were the ones that when the Bible would talk about the Pharisees, it would say the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. And it's not often in Scripture that you read anything positive about a scribe because they are usually steeped in legalism and self-righteousness because they have so much knowledge. And the Bible says that knowledge can puff you up. You can know a lot about God, but not know God. And usually the encounters that Jesus had with the scribes were not positive. And so we have no reason to think that this is no different because many times they will come up to Christ trying to test him, trying to trap him. 
So this scribe comes up to him and he says to, Lord, to the Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And so I give him credit that he approached Jesus. And he used the words of discipleship because he says, I'll follow you. And a, a, a disciple is someone who follows a teacher. A disciple is someone who submits himself to a teacher. A disciple is someone, especially in that time, who had a rabbi. A disciple was someone who was a student, a mathetes is the word in the Greek, who was a pupil or a learner of another, one who submitted himself under another. And so he used discipleship words, I'll follow you. I want you to be my rabbi, my teacher, my master even. I'll follow you, Lord, wherever you go. And what we're going to see in Jesus' response is that it seems to be a little insensitive because rather than saying, oh, praise the Lord, we have another person to sit in a pew in the church. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Another person is sad that they want to follow Christ. Jesus is like, no, I'm not impressed by just what you say. I'm impressed by what you do because walking with God and following God is not a sprint. It's a marathon. And the Bible also lets us know in John chapter 2 that Jesus, he didn't really, he wasn't impressed with people, so to speak, because he knew what was in men's hearts. So when people's motives were off and twisted, the Lord already knew that about folks. And so this guy comes to him and he's like, I'll follow you wherever you go. And again, he represents a group of people who don't really want to submit to the Lord. And Jesus says to him, okay, all right, let's see. Let's see how real you are. Just like when the rich kid came and the kid says, I've kept the whole law. And Jesus is like, okay, all right, I'll tell you what. Go sell everything, give it to the poor, then come back and follow me. The kid said, no, I can't do that. He went away sad, meaning that he was, in fact, a lawbreaker, not a law keeper, because he was saying that his wealth was before the Lord, which means he broke the first commandment, which he said he had kept. No, 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 no. A couple things we're going to learn about the Lord is that you can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can't fool Jesus none of the time. So we might as well be straight up with him because he's straight up with us. He already knows what's in our heart, and we can't play him. So Jesus says to him, okay, I'll tell you what. Uh, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Are you sure you want to follow me? Because the road that I'm walking is not a road that is laced with comfortability and ease and tranquility. I'm here to let you know that if you want to follow me, there are going to be some uncertain days. Matter of fact, foxes live better than we do. Birds even have homes. I don't know where I'm going to lay my head tonight because I'm here fulfilling the will of God. And there's this adventurous aspect. Thank you, Stephen Curtis Chapman. This is a great adventure. You sure you want to go on this with me? Because I can't promise you what is going to happen. I mean, there's some stuff we're going to face out here. We're going to live on the countryside. We're going to be tested. We're going to be tried. This road is not for the weak at heart. And so we need to take a pen here and just stop right here and just say that when we follow Jesus, we're going to get comfort in heaven, but that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to get comfort in this life. And Jesus even said that some people will fall away due to the trials and tribulations of this life. And so for some, when it gets hard, they turn from God. But for true disciples, when it gets hard, we turn to God. We depend on God. And sometimes when you follow him, he will lead you into places that you would have never picked out for yourself. But that's the point about following the leader. 
Oh, my, there are places the Lord has led me in my years with him that had I known he was going to take me to them places where it seemed like we were living outdoors. And sometimes I was in the bush. Sometimes I was on a street corner right in the middle of gang warfare. And I'm all kind of places. I'm like, now, had I known he was going to take me to them places, I wouldn't have went. But that's why he doesn't tell you everything. We're supposed to follow him by faith. And next thing you know, he'll have you. He'll take you out of the classroom and have you on the corner. And you got to believe that what he says is real. He'll take because that's how you grow. And so Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you might not have a lot of comfort. Do you still want to follow me? If you follow me, you may go some places where your life could be endangered. If you follow me, oh, it's going to be tough. Do you still want to go? Well, we don't know how this young man responded. Matter of fact, we're not going to know how the second man or the third man is going to respond. And it's almost written in such a way as, put yourself in their shoes. How would you respond? Lord, I want to follow you. Okay, I've got some suffering ahead for you. You still want to follow me? <sighs> Do you trust me? <sighs> well, there was another man who came up to him. Verse 59. Then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. So I love this. Jesus allows people to come up to him, and then Jesus goes up to people. There's no one way that salvation works. Uh, you've got Calvinists who believe that God does all the choosing, and God does choose. We see that in Scripture. But then you've got Arminians on the other side who believe that they have to choose. And, and we see people choosing in Scripture. Now, these two truths run parallel. They do not contradict, and sometimes they intersect. Now, I can't explain it, so I just label myself not a Calvinist or an Arminian, but a Calminian because I see God working by divine selection, but I also see man coming up to God. Jesus said, nobody can come to me unless the Father draws him. And then Jesus turns around and says, uh, uh, if anyone comes to me, I won't cast him out. How do they work together? I don't know. Salvation is God's business. Let me get out and just preach the gospel and leave the saving to him. And so he says to this one guy, follow me. Oh, it's reminiscent of when he called the disciples when they were out fishing by the Sea of Galilee. And he said, follow me, follow me. And Peter, James, and John, when they heard the voice of the Lord, they dropped everything and followed him. There's something about the voice of the Lord when it crescendos against your soul, the emptiness and barrenness of your soul. When you hear the voice of the Lord hit your heart, and you're out fishing, you're out trying to make money. And on one particular day, they had made a lot of money. And the Lord said, leave all them fish and come follow me, Luke chapter 5. Because there's something more important than money. It's Jesus. And when he speaks to the soul, the Bible says in the book of Ecclesiastes that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. Meaning that there's this eternal hole that only an eternal God can fill. And when you hear the voice of the Lord saying, I will be the one to plug that hole. I will be the one to give substance and purpose to your life. When you hear his voice, what are you going to do? So Jesus says to this man who's privileged to hear Jesus say, follow me. Because many are called. But few are chosen. This man says, but follow me, but follow me, but Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, if we take a couple of words out of here, like on the soul train scramble board, if we just pulled a couple of words out, you have the words, but Lord, and that's never a good combination. It should always be yes, Lord. Jesus says something, follow me, but 
Lord, no, it should be, yes, Lord. One thing about God is that he gave us this ability to choose because he made us in his image. He will never override our capacity to choose. Ah, oh, man, again, you're getting into those deep theological waters. Let me pull the boat back. But if I were to take a couple of words out, you see the words, Lord, let me first. But if I take let out, I see, Lord, me first. You didn't see that. But Lord, me first. But Lord, me first. Jesus is saying, come follow me. But Lord, me first. Because Jesus can't be the Lord of our lives if we're still steady trying to be the Lord of our own lives. And so this is elementary. This is basic. You can't run your life and expect the Lord to run your life too. Somebody's going to run it. And when we acknowledge that he is the Lord and I am not, it should make sense to us that I should submit to him and follow him. And so he says, Lord, let me first go. So this says that his priorities are out of line. Because he said, me first, not you first. But wait a minute, wait a minute, pastor. Jesus is being insensitive here again because this guy is saying, I got to first go bury my father. Then Jesus is going to say, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and preach the kingdom of God? Wait a minute, wait a minute, slow it down, back it up. This guy's saying, let me first go and bury my father. That's a good reason. That's a good excuse, isn't it? Then the Lord says, um, no, let the dead bury the dead. You come and follow me and preach the gospel. Jesus, Jesus, didn't you just hear him say that he's got a funeral to attend? Jesus, I can't believe that you're trying to tell him, man, do not grieve over your daddy. Come follow me. Come on, Jesus. That doesn't make sense. Well, let's grab our Middle Eastern lenses and put this on and try to understand the scripture here a little bit better. Because back in that time, when you would say that you had to bury your father, that didn't always mean that your father was dead. That could mean that your father was dying or your father was old about to die. And so what he's saying is, I don't know when my father is going to kick the bucket. Once he kicks the bucket, then I'll come follow you. And he's like, okay, okay, but let's keep digging into Eastern culture. It's not so much about you waiting for your father to die, whether he's sick or he's old. The truth is, you're waiting for your father to die so that you can make sure you get your inheritance money. That's what you're really saying. I'll follow you once I get this check. Because if I'm not there when Pop dies, then when they start doling out his farm and his animals and his house and his clothing, I want to make sure I get my part. And so therefore, Lord, when he dies and I get the inheritance, then I'll come and follow you on my terms after my priorities are taken care of. And that's why Jesus says, look, let the dead bury the dead. In other words, let the spiritually dead deal with the physically dead. There are things that are very important so that we can preach the gospel so that spiritually dead people can become spiritually alive people. Come on, let's go. Oh, boy, boy. So not only do we see that you can't fool Jesus, but Jesus won't chase you. Because, again, the implication of the text is the guy walked away. And Jesus didn't chase him any more than he chased the rich young ruler. Any more than he may have chased this first guy. If this first guy walked away, who said, I don't want to be out there without no place to live. You can't fool him. He won't chase you, and he won't make you. 
he figures, man, if I'm all out in a bag of chips, you should want to be with me. I ain't going to force you. I ain't going to manipulate you. Nothing. I'm going to extend this love to you, man. And if you don't want it, that's all right. Because he came to his own and his own didn't receive him. But to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Oh, my. So Jesus ain't looking for easy believism. He ain't just looking to try to have a bunch of people hanging around him to say how many disciples he got. Jesus said, I'd rather roll with a few disciples who are committed to God than to have a bunch of people hanging around. Remember when he fed the 5,000, not counting women and children in John chapter 6. The Bible says that they were called disciples. And they were cool as long as Jesus was feeding their belly. But the minute Jesus challenged them and said that I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. Your fathers ate the manna and died, but if you eat me, you'll live forever. They're like, wait a minute now, he's claiming to be eternal. Then he, Jesus messed with him and said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't enter into the kingdom. They're like, oh, we know we don't want him now. <laughs> and the Bible says many of the disciples went away and left him. And then Jesus had the audacity to say to the 12, you going to leave too? Because I really don't need you to do what I got to do. Oh, that cross is going to get carried. I'm going to die on it. But, but, but we can get some more disciples. So again, you see he's giving them a choice. And thank God for Peter. Peter said, no, we ain't going nowhere else. <laughs> Only you got the words of eternal life. And so they got in line and followed him when all the crowds went away from him. Jesus is the only preacher I know who would make his crowd smaller on purpose. Because when a good word goes out, a hard word goes out, it's going to divide. And when you can't have God on your terms, which means you've made yourself God, then the Lord is like, no, my program is going to go on with or without you, but I'm giving you a choice to come with me. And then in verse 61, it says, and another also said, Lord, he's got the right word. I will follow you. That is, I'll be a disciple. I'll be a follower of Christ. But let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know how you read this, but when I read this, Jesus seems a little hard to me. He seems a little harsh to me. He seems a little too straight up for me. When, when I read this, I'm like, wow, Jesus, this dude just said I want to go home and say goodbye. <laughs> I mean, remember when Elisha was following Elijah? He said, let me first go home and say goodbye to my family before I take this prophetic mantle from you. And Elijah let Elisha go home. And so maybe this guy's like, it worked for Elisha. Maybe it'll work for me. And Jesus is like, well, the ministry of Elisha is one thing, but the Messiah is here now, and there's a greater commitment that is demanded of you. Besides, again, Jesus knows everybody's heart. And Jesus may have known that this guy was using his family as an excuse to not do the things of God. Oh, I'm not going to stay there long. But I know a lot of Christians who will use their family commitment. Oh, I got to have some family time. I can't come by the church. Oh, I got to spend some time with my wife. I can't serve the Lord and do outreach. Oh, I got to spend some time with my children so I can't go out and minister to other people's children. Now, now, now there's a place because if God is first, our family should be second. Uh -huh. And so when we have that priority right, man, our family should not be sacrificed. 
But sometimes we put our family over God and we act like God is first. And again, God won't be fooled because Jesus says, when I come, this gospel is going to separate family members anyway. Because I'm supposed to be first in your life over your mother, over your father, over your children, over your spouse. So don't give me that kind of stuff that you want to run home and say goodbye to your family. What you're really saying is that you're putting your family before me. And whenever you put something or somebody before me, you're not worthy to follow me. Oh, this is a good gut check for me today. Oh, Lord. Jesus says no one having put his hands to the plow. You, you done started this thing. And then you look back. You're not fit for the kingdom of God. When you look back, that reminds you of somebody in the Old Testament who had been set free by grace. Her name was Mrs. Lot. She got set free. And Jesus even said in John, excuse me, Luke chapter 17, verse 32. Man, I thought Jesus wept was the shortest verse. Listen to this one. Luke 17, 32. Remember Lot's wife. That's all Jesus said. Remember Lot's wife. We got a new memory verse. Luke 17, 32, remember Lot's wife. Jesus said that. In other words, don't you look back. Because you know what happened when she looked back? She turned into a pillar of salt. Because we can't go forward in the things of God steadily looking back. And the Lord Jesus said, now, look. In this culture, if you're going to plow a field, you can't plow a field looking backwards. You have to plow. He used common illustrations. Keep your eyes on the field and where you're plowing. You can't plow forward looking back. You can't serve Jesus looking back to what you left. Because if you look back, you're going to get crooked. If you look back long, you're going to plow and mess something up. But Jesus says, man, keep your eyes on me. So we see here, as far as discipleship, Jesus is saying that when I call you, I may call you to some uncomfortable things in some uncomfortable places. But watch this stuff. When you lose your life for my sake, that's when you find it anyway. That's the, but if you try to save your life and say, no, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to go in the mission field. I don't want to follow Jesus into these tough places. No, no, no. That's when you lose your life. So trust the shepherd who has his face so set. He's like, listen. I'm going to Jerusalem to die on the cross for my followers. The least I expect of my followers is to carry the cross that I give them. I'm not asking them to die on the cross. I'm asking them just to carry their cross. I'm going to die on the cross and make a sacrifice. You want to be like me? Make a sacrifice and carry your cross every day. If you can't do that, you can't be my disciple. What's the cross? It's a death instrument. It's not about you. It's about God. So you got to put yourself to death on a daily basis because when I rise up, I'm going to get in trouble. I'll put me first instead of God first. And two of these guys did the same thing. Lord, but me first. And I mess up as a disciple who's growing by grace, growing in sanctification when I put me first. But that's why I thank God that there's grace for the journey. That discipleship is a process, not so much a program. I didn't finish this book now, so I'm a disciple. You better check yourself before you wreck yourself. Discipleship is a process. Jesus is the teacher. I don't care who your earthly teacher is. Jesus is the ultimate teacher who's leading us into all truth through the Holy Spirit. He's discipling us ultimately. So from what we read, we don't know, as I mentioned, what any of these men decided. But based on Luke 
9, 57 through 62, Jesus challenges all disciples then and now to be all in. You can't have a foot over here in the kingdom and a foot over here in your own interests. You got to have all feet in, either hot or cold. None of this straddling the fence in the middle. And again, I think it's a good gut check for us all. Where do we stand with Jesus? Have we heard him say, follow us, follow him? And if so, are we all in or are we partially in? To be partially in is to be all the way out. So Jesus, when you call us to something uncomfortable, we're all in. When you call us to say that money is important, but it shouldn't be first, we're all in. And when you say, yes, your family is important, but your family shouldn't be first, Lord Jesus, we're still all in. Because I've never met anyone like you. I've never met anyone who can do for me what only you can do for me. Again, you're the one who's changed my life. So I give you my life. And the irony is when I give you my life, I find my life and I find my purpose. I find my reason for living. I'm so honored to be a disciple who's growing as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Is there anybody else who's all in as a disciple of Jesus Christ? Can you put your hands together? Amen, 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 amen. Well, uh, let's stand to our feet. Is Homer here? Brother Homer, Brother Homer. You're supposed to close this in prayer. Brother Homer, Brother Homer not here? So, Aubrey, I see you coming up to take Homer's place. Come on up. No, brother, you come on, you come on. All right. Brother Homer and I are on the same team, so if yeah. one of the teammates can't, can't come, then someone has to step up, so. I just thank God for the opportunity. Pastor, thank you so very much for the word uh, and a challenging word uh, because we all want to be disciples of Christ, but sometimes we want to do it our way and not his way. So, Father God, even as we come to the close of this service, I pray that you would prick our hearts even right now in such a way, oh God, that we are encouraged to follow you. Heavenly Father, we want to do it your way and not our way. We want to think the way you think. We want to love what you love. We want to hate what you hate. We want to walk as you walk. We want to talk as you talk. Father God, we want to be representatives of Jesus Christ. We want to emulate you in every aspect of our lives. Father God, even as our young people will go off to school this year, we're praying and thanking you even right now, dear God, that they will truly be your disciples. Those that are, are participating in sports activities, they're all in with your sports, oh God. And we pray that they will now be all in for you. Those that are on the academic track, oh mighty God, they give everything they have for academic excellence. Father God, we're also encouraged, asking you to encourage their spirits, oh God, through your holy and divine spirit. Encourage them to be all in as disciples of Christ. Heavenly Father, in everything they observe from students that are around them, I pray, oh God, that they will look to you, who is the author and the finisher of their faith. You are the giver of every good and perfect gift. Heavenly Father, I pray they will submit their ways and their desires and their will unto you, oh Lord. Help me, I pray, oh Lord, to walk behind you. Help me, almighty God, to love my wife the way you love the church. The Father God, that I will lay down my very life for her. I pray, almighty God, that you would enable us as parents, oh God, to demonstrate our dis, uh, discipline and, and following of you the way we raise our children, oh God, in the admonition, the fear and admonition of the Lord. Heavenly Father, I pray that, that you would enable us and show us where we are falling short. Heavenly Father, begin to teach us all the more how to be more like you. Now as we would leave this place, oh God, 
Continue to teach us, Almighty God, to be more like you. In Jesus' holy name, we praise you and we thank you forever and ever. Amen.